0: Um, So this morning, we're going to look at Nehemiah 12 and 13. If you want to turn there, uh, I'm sure Matthew's going to put that up on the screen as well. And um, I will be finishing out our series through Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, We have taken those two books, they're presented as two books in the scriptures. However, we have taken them as one because we believe that was the original intent. And so I'll be finishing out, we will be finishing out Nehemiah this morning, and therefore our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you remember, Uh, much about the books. Um, These books were written... about the time that uh, Israel had been taken into captivity in Babylon by the Babylonians, uh, Jerusalem had been ransacked, the wall around Jerusalem had been torn down, the temple had been torn down, the altars had been obliviated, and the, the people of God had been in exile for about 50 years, and then God moves his people back over a uh, uh, several year period. And uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were two of the predominant leaders in that God used to bring the people back from exile back to Jerusalem uh to first rebuild the altar, then to rebuild the temple and finally to rebuild the wall. And as we get to the end of the book of Nehemiah, the wall has been built. It has it, their their mission has been accomplished. And and this is where we're going to pick up in verse 27 of chapter 12 of Nehemiah. And I'm going to skip around, so uh, it's not Matthew's fault. I'm sure he'll try to just keep up with me uh, as I bounce around a little bit. But uh, here we go. The Word of God. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, so they're dedicating the wall, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of uh, Nep- <laughs> Netophathites, also from Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmateth For the singers have built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I, Nehemiah, brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 38. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the board wall. Now I'm going to skip down. So they've they gathered this massive choir that has surrounded the city of Jerusalem up on top of the wall. Um, Verse 44. And on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priest and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priest and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron." Okay, so they dedicate the wall by amassing this incredibly huge choir. And they're, they're singing on top of the wall. And um, far away, people could hear them rejoicing. Well, apparently, as we're going to see really uh, down in, in, in some middle verses... After the dedication of the wall, Nehemiah goes back to Babylon to meet back up with Artaxerxes, kind of to touch home base and say, okay, let me give you an update on what has happened in my absence because um, Nehemiah was, um, um, you know, the cupbearer of the king. And so he needs to go back, touch home base. Well, apparently he'd been gone quite a while because chapter 13 begins i mean chapter 12 ends by you thinking man israel's restored the people of god are obedient they're worshiping again they're giving their tithes the levites are eating well everything is in great shape but as soon as nehemiah leaves they apparently stop reading the word of god they stop worshiping they stop tithing they the 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 um the the Righteousness of Israel is, has really diminished and it's vanished. Because we begin reading in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Now, they should have known that. <laughs> it's like, man, they hadn't done their quiet time in a long time if they didn't know that. And so this is the condition, and this is how the book is going to end. It ends kind of on a decline. Let's keep reading. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from all Israel those of foreign descent. So they hadn't read the law in a long time. They read the law and they overreact and say anybody that doesn't look like us needs to get out. Um, And then we read in verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. They've stopped tithing. There's nothing in the grain house anymore. So, hey, why don't we use it as a storage bin? Uh, unbelievable. Um, so, they previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So Tobiah, who can't even prove he's an Israelite, is living in uh, this chamber. And I was very angry, and I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back uh, there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work of the temple had fled each to his field. So they left town because they they weren't being supported. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God being forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed a treasurer, uh, as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah, the priest Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was um, to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds um, that I have done for the house of my God for his service. Now, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Uh, Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath. They're doing commerce on the Sabbath, uh, selling to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? In other words, don't you remember why we went into exile the first time? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark, as the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut shut, and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But then I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. Now, Nehemiah, uh, he, he's got some anger issues. We're about to see that uh, clearly. Uh, but, hey, you got to kind of admire that sometimes. Um, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. I bet they didn't. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. Now what he's, look, people have used this to, to preach against um, interracial marriage, and that has absolutely nothing to do with this. That what is happening here is the fact that um, that you know the children of Israel are marrying um, the women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Is that these don't these are people that don't believe in God? So it's not interracial; it's interfaith. And, and the fact that they can't even speak um, Hebrew, they can't understand the Bible. They can't understand the Word of God. And so, um, in, uh, in other words, what's being condemned here is um, God's people marrying unbelievers. Um, and we need to hear that um, and the effect that that has on children uh, as well. Um, All right, verse 25, and I confronted, this is where we see the real Nehemiah, if you will. And then I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Uh, what not to do. Remember, we started, you know, talking about narrative, historical narrative. Much of historical narrative says, you know, this is what not to do. This is one of those instances. This is not how you bring reform and revival back to the church. Okay? Uh, didn't work then. Won't work today. Um, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Yeah, about a thousand times. He had more women than anybody could count. Um, so good illustration, Nehemiah. Um, among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him um, made even him to sin. Now, that sounds like a really um, very prejudiced statement against women. Um, and so, yeah, uh, he sinned because he wanted to sin. I'll have to say that. But anyway, shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? The answer would be no. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanbalat, the Horonite, Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from every uh, everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his own work. And I provided for the wood offering at, at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Thus ends the reading of God's word. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. I'm sorry, I forgot what I was supposed to say. Um, that's. I just. I feel like I just preached the sermon. Amen. Let's go home. Uh, good grief. Um, all right, let's pray, and then we'll dive in uh, to Nehemiah. Father, we thank you. Uh, what a patient God you are. Um, It's so easy to laugh at Nehemiah. It's so easy to to be appalled at the sins of the ancient uh, children of God. And yet, uh, are we any different? No. Thank you that your patience is for us today as it was for them then. Thank you, O God, that you have sent more than a bull or a dove. You have sent your son Jesus. And he is our sacrifice He is the blood that washes away our sin. He is the blood that absorbs our shame and our guilt. He is the one that um, we need more than anything. And so, God, I pray this morning that, that you might do the work of purification among us, that you might expose sin in our hearts, that you might give us new visions of old things, namely how to be the people of God in a world of wickedness and darkness. And, oh, God, I pray that you would be glorified in the next few minutes. Uh, Teach us by your spirit through your word. Thank you for this story. Um, Thank you that the history of your people uh, can teach us how we can rewrite the history for the church today. So, God, give us the faith to do so, the courage to do so, the desire to do so, um, because we know that you are the God that can do so. Um, So, God, work among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, MLK50 is over, and the question that we're all asking is, so where do we go from here? And whereas you ask 100 people in Memphis or across the nation, where do we go from here and how do we go from here, you might get a 100 different answers. If you ask the church, the church ought to have one unified answer. And that is where we go from here is where we should have been going the whole time. And that is forward as the repenting and believing people of God. Where we go from here is by being the radical community of God's people who are passionately worshiping him and loving one another and embracing the world around us to come in and to follow Jesus with us. I mean, where we need to go is to be the kind of people that God has commanded us to be and redeemed us to be from beginning to end. And that is a people that love mercy, that do justice, and that walk humbly with our God. You see, we are to be the people that are, are, are to be such a radically different community from the world that the world stands back and goes, I don't really understand that, but I am attracted to that. Because these people love their God so much, and God, their God pours out His love on them so much that the poor and the oppressed, their needs are filled the, the, the illiterate, uh, those who may be illiterate are taught to read, those who don't have homes get houses, those who don't have jobs find jobs, those, the sick are healed. This is a community that is not about themselves but about their God in this world. Now, am I saying that we should not participate in the different movements of the world? Not necessarily. But what I'm saying is, is that I feel as if the church today has gotten so caught up in justice issues as opposed to being the just community of God. We are to be the church. You see, we are not to be individual Christians who have our quiet times and get right with me and Jesus alone alone. But the reason we get right with me and Jesus is so that we can get right with one another and that the world might stand back and go, look at how those people love. I mean, that is the purpose. Your salvation is not the end. Your salvation is the beginning of a mass revolution called the church, being the church, in which the world stands back and goes, oh my, I want to hear about their God. But unfortunately today, there are very few communities in which the world stands back and says, Oh, I want to hear about their God. But in fact, and in place of that, the world stands back and says, I want nothing to do with their God. If this is the result, I want nothing to do with their God. Shame on us. Dear friends, we are Israel. We have been exiled and we need to come back You see, where am I getting this? What was Jerusalem to be? What was the whole thing about Jerusalem? Jerusalem was to be the model. It was to be the reality, the city of God, in which the citizens are united out of their love for God and what He's done for them, namely delivered them, the great deliverance through the waters. They were to be the delivered people of God, who lived justly before their God in a community of love. That's what all the economic laws were in the Old Testament. That's what the the, the moral code and laws were in the Old Testament. It was not about God being, you know, this policeman on high. No, it was about this is how the people of God who are alive in me, who live in my presence and are empowered by my presence are to live. As free people, and free people live worshiping God unashamedly. And free people live for God, not governed by their money, not governed by their desires, not governed by anything but the love of God for them and His presence among them. Dear friends, this is what we are called to do. We're called to rebuild Jerusalem which is the community of God, downtown church. The reason the church isn't working is because the church is viewing those who come as consumers and those who come are, is view, are viewing the church as a, con, a, a, as a store. This is where I come to get a little encouragement to go back and live the life I way, the way I want to live it. No! We are, this is nothing more this morning than, than a huge, um, it is a celebration of who God is among us, what He's done among us. This is where God shows up and, and works in our hearts and moves us toward Him and toward one another that we, that it might permeate throughout the week. That's what this is to be. We are to be a just community, a loving community that cares For one another. That is what we're being called to um, in Ezra Nehemiah and really from Genesis through Revelation. But let's look at it. A couple of things. To really understand the kind of community that God is after, we need to understand that true community is marked by the joy of the Lord. Christian community is more about a people that are for something than against things. It's more, much more positive than it is negative. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn, I came to save. I didn't come to judge, I came to save. So why are we judging everybody? I mean, it's interesting, we've got it backwards. We judge the world when the early church judged. I mean, they were judging those in their community, but not the world. They weren't surprised the world was sinning. They were appalled when the believers sinned. And we've got it absolutely backwards. You see, we are to be a community that is marked by the joy of the Lord. I was recently at a um, a dinner for somebody in this body. That It was a birthday party at a local art gallery. And there were probably 20 or 30 of us there having dinner. And it was a... Fun time. I mean, we were really enjoying each other's company. People were hugging each other and we were, you know, just enjoying each other. And as I was going through the food line, I noticed that Michael Davis was talking to a gentleman kind of in the corner. And I'd seen this gentleman, you know, in the room throughout the night. And, I, you know, I, I could tell he wasn't invited to the party. He was probably in charge of the art gallery and just kind of making sure none of us walked away with a piece of art or something, mm-hmm. uh, most likely. And so um, I went over there. And Michael called me over there and said, hey, come meet this guy. You know, and I met him. And, and he said, man, who are what? You know, what what is this group? I said, oh, we're down, you know, we're a bunch of friends at downtown church. He said, man... I've been looking church, looking for a church ever since I've been in Memphis. I love the energy of this room. I love the energy of these people. And what was he saying? There's something. Joy marks these people. There's something different about the way they greet each other. There's something different about their relationship. I don't understand. It's such a diverse age-wise because they invited an old guy like me and a lot of young people and black and white. And I don't understand this, but I'm a. i am I want to. I'll be there Sunday morning. He may be here this morning. I have no idea. This was a couple of weeks ago. And friends, that's how it works. We didn't have the party to witness to anybody. We were being the people of God, and we were witnessing the people. A homeless person came in. We welcomed him in, put him through the food line. That is the people of God. The world stands back and goes, yes, other people have a security guard that keeps people out. We open the doors and say, come on in. I mean, that is to be the church. Six times in verses 27 through 43 of chapter 12, does Nehemiah use the Hebrew word for joy or rejoicing? Listen, uh, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem for one purpose. To celebrate joyfully. Celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving, with the music of cymbals and harps and lyres. Verse 43. On that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. Isn't that beautiful? The the ESV, which is what I read from um, earlier, uh, translates that phrase this. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The first thing that came to my mind when I read that was when I'm at my house and I hear fireworks at AutoZone Park. And I can hear people, you know, woo, you know, or, or Fourth of July when they go off on the end of Mud Island. From our house, we can hear people, yay, the rejoicing. I picture in my mind this crowd of people just celebrating, you know. Does the world see us full of the joy of the Lord? Does the the world see us as a people who don't just come together to condemn, but who come together to rejoice in our God for His goodness and what He's done for us? In what's called the Epistle of Methodus to Diognetus, um, in around the year 130, this was a letter. Methodist is not a person. It, it's um, either Latin or Greek word for disciple. So it's a disciple writing to um, uh, an unbeliever whose name was Diognetus. And this is a... Um, An apologetic. um, uh, You know, whoever this young disciple is writing to Diognetus is trying to convince Diognetus to become a Christian and listen to what he said. This is in the year 130. Unbelievable. If you also desire to possess this faith, this is the argument. You likewise shall receive, first of all, the knowledge of the Father. In other words, to come into the the, um, the community of God is to see God as your Father. For God has loved mankind. And when you have attained this knowledge, with what joy do you think you will be filled? In the year 130. <laughs> what the, the, the whole thing was, man, if you see God as your Father... Don't you think that's going to impact your life? Don't you think there's going to be joy? Don't you think that joy is going to put all of your problems in the background? Don't you think as His love becomes in focus that you will do nothing but find Him to be everything that He promises to be? Oh, dear friends. If we understand the gospel of Jesus, if that's what we're about, if we understand the good news, that's why they call it good news, that's why it's called the gospel. If we really understand the gospel, that we were sinners, that we were dead in our sin, that there was nothing we can do to save ourselves, that we were all about us and not about God, even though he created us for himself, but God in his kindness reached down and pulled us up and breathed life into our souls by His Spirit, quickening us by His Word to believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God who lived, died, and rose for His people. And that it's through faith and faith alone and all of grace that we are loved by God dearly and we have an eternal future and glory that indeed one day someday Jesus is coming back to make all things new, all our desires for justice, all our desires for equality, all our desires for peace and righteousness will be fulfilled in Him. If we believe that, then we will have joy. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. That's why Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of believing this is what? It is love and joy. We should be a joy-filled people. That's why Paul confronts the Galatian believers in Galatians 4.15. Believers, what has happened to all your joy? He's not saying, why are you sleeping together? He's not saying, why are you divorcing? He's not saying, why aren't you tithing? Where's your joy? We need to start rebuking each other. Why such a long face? Do you need to be reminded what God has done for you today? (laughs) We need to start doing church discipline for that. Why? Because if you're not believing the gospel, that is why you're not having joy. It's not that there's a deficiency of, of, of stuff to believe to make you joyful. The deficiency is in your faith. You're not believing it. Boy, how I need it. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those that aren't content, that that aren't being fed by this world, who are poor in spirit, who are looking to the things of the world and saying no, but saying, oh, no, 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 my joy is in the Lord. And what is the difference between joy in the world and joy in the Lord? Well, are you a Grizzly fan this season? That explains joy in the world we got nothing to be happy about. The only thing we can be happy about is maybe we're going to get the second pick in the draft because we're so bad. <laughs> Man, when we were in the playoffs, I, you know, we're like up here wearing grizzly jerseys. I don't, I don't even know where my grizzly jersey is. That's joy in the world. Oh, but joy in the Lord. That victory's already been won. There's nothing else to add to it. That's what makes it superior to anything else. Every other religion, but also every other thing. You know, today we don't have, you know, there are battles between the religions among the world, but we're more over here. We've got the religion of work. We've got the religion of sex. We've got the religion of materials, things, and money. We've got the religion of image and identity. We've, no. Jesus is where we need to place our worship and our trust because he lived, he died, he rose, he's coming back, and nothing's going to change that. It is finished. And that's why you're not fools for believing it. That, that's why it has power no matter what is going on in your life. This, super, this rises above it because it is not the joy of the world that is wishy-washy. It's the joy of the Lord. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. Oh, may it be so for us today. But then secondly, true Christian community is marked by community-wide faithfulness. I'm going to try to be really, i really struggle with how to make this point. Um, because I'm really tempted to go in one direction. Um, and I'll just give you a taste of the direction that, you know, I, I don't, here, here's, the, here's the thing. The reason that, and I'm going to try to not, to, anyway, I'm just going to say it. Thank you, thank you, I'm free, hallelujah, Jesus loves me no matter what. So, um, here's the point. (laughs) The reason so many, and I'm going to preach to white people for a second. The reason so many of our um, black brothers and sisters were so devastated and hurt by the last presidential election was not so much that Trump won, but the fact that it seems like he won with primarily the white evangelical vote. So the reason it is so personal (laughs) is because it seems like white believers said, this is what we value more than you. And the reason that that is so tragic um, is because, because to a large extent it's true. Now, well, I'm not gonna say, it. I'm not gonna qualify it. I'm just gonna keep preaching here. Um I'm just gonna keep walking. Um what we have seen over the last several months um, is uh, I can't think of a president that has had more tarnishing <laughs> with uh, 17 women so far. What's sad is we knew all this before, but now we're getting names and faces and and, and the reality of it is this: what we are valuing is rising to the surface. And that's what's troubling. You see, and I think it should be troubling. Why? Because the world can do whatever the world wants to do. But the church is God's people. It's not a political action group. Um, It's not a political think tank. The church is the community of God's people that stretches across every race, every language, every tribe, and that stands for what is true and good. Now we can go, oh, well, what was our choice? Okay, just hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. Just hear what I'm saying. If we are to be the people of God, we must be a people that demonstrate. The character of God's gospel more than anything. And so this is what his character is. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the greatest justice verse I know of. So what does that mean? That means Richard in and of himself is is an absolute, I use an old school term, stench in the nostril of God. Okay, If you grew up in Baptist church, you've heard that term, man, uh, many times. Richard in and of himself is a stench in the nostril of God. But in Jesus, clothed in his righteousness, I am dearly loved and treasured and have been from all eternity in Christ Jesus. I don't deserve that. And so what comes out of that is a life of gratitude that looks for how to react in gratitude to a lost and hurting world. And that's what Jesus is getting about and loving God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength being the greatest commandment. But loving your neighbors yourself is being second and just like it. Because you can't love God and know the nature of His love toward you. He's loving His enemy when He's loving you, and you not love your enemy. In other words, there is no way that we cannot be about justice if we are truly living a gospel-driven life. There's no way that we're not thinking about our brother or sister who doesn't, is not gonna eat today who doesn't have clothes, who lives on the street, who's unemployed, who can't read, who doesn't have the same kind of school. These are not political issues. When we talk about it out there, it's political and social. When we talk about it in here, it is gospel. We've got to be able to separate those two. I'm not being political. I'm being gospel when I talk about this. It's as simple as us responding to what God has done for us and, del- and, 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 and doling that out to our neighbors. That's it. And that's what we see. I, I did come up with some ancient um, examples of this that I really love. Here is a, um, a quote from um, Mathetus to Diognetus, that, that um, uh, first century, second century quote. It, the unbeliever stood back and said, these Christians share their food, but not their wives. Man, in the church today, we share our wives, but not our food. Do you see the power of it? Listen to this. This was written during um, um, the great uh, second great plague. Thousands were dying. And here was uh, um, Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria. He wrote a pastoral letter to his people, and he's, he's applauding them. And this is what he says. Most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Needless, uh, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministered to, to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. I don't know, whatever plague they had, I don't, we don't, I don't know what it was. I, mean, I don't even know if history knows what it was. Whatever the plague they had, Christians didn't say, oh man, i got to protect me and mine. We're going to start our own little colony of well people over here. They said, no, you're sick, you're my neighbor, I love you. Oh, I got sick. Maybe I made a mistake. No, it said they died happily. They said, praise God. I'll take whatever light you give me. Jesus, you came to heal me and you had to die. Maybe that's what I got. I mean, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Dear friends, this is what we're called to. We're set to be a community of justice, love, equity out of the gospel. In response to the gospel. We're to be this set-apart community. 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. Do you hear all this Old Testament stuff? He's saying it hadn't changed. The church is the temple. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy... You are the new Jerusalem, excuse me. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're a people of God. Once you were just out there on your own, but now, no, you're the family of God. Be my family. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. At some point after the dedication of the wall, and I love that Nehemiah. I love the Bible so much because of this. They could have ended it in chapter 12, and we go, man, look at Israel. They were the example, and now we say, look at Israel. They're just like us. They need God as much as we do. Because what what do they do? At least five things. Nehemiah leaves. They stop reading God's word. They abandon worship. They stop tithing. They replace godly community for commerce. They put their work over their church and worshiping life. They allowed men who did not believe nor worship God into the community of fellowship, even marrying unbelievers. Dear friends, the church is guilty of the exact same thing. I heard um, somebody rebuke the church because... If you read the letter from Dr. King from a Birmingham jail uh, written 50 years ago, you could say, man, he could write that today. (laughs) The same letter. Nothing's changed. Well, guess what? This was written a couple thousand years ago, and nothing's changed. (laughs) Because we're guilty. We're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous. No, not one. I mean, that's what what we learn from Nehemiah and Ezra. And the result, though, was that Jerusalem was not Jerusalem. The city of God was not the city of God, but the city of man. So what do we do? Three quick things. We repent. We turn a different direction. We say no more. For me and my house, this is the way we're going. We're not going to, we're not doing, we're, we have sinned, all of us. No one in here is more righteous than the other. I don't care who you voted for, or what. It's all sin. We repent. That's what the whole book is about. The priests and the Levites purify themselves. Then they purify the people and the gates and the wall. 1322. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves. They purify themselves in 12. Then they go astray. They got to purify themselves again. Dear friends, we got to purify ourselves again. Yeah. And we'll probably have to do it again in a week. Or maybe tonight. (laughs) I mean, that's. but how do we purify ourselves? We don't bring our goat. We don't bring our turtle dove. We don't, up to the altar, we fall on our knees before Jesus and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Here's my sin. Here is my sin. I've been more about me. I've spent my money on me. I've spent my time on me. I've spent my thought life on me. I don't pray. I don't read your Bible because I don't love you and I'm not grateful. I have no joy. We repent. We name it. God knows it already. Tell him what he already knows. And then maybe you'll be informed and I'll be informed. Repent. And then be overcome by God's glory. (sighs) Imagine for me, with me for a second, if the Grizzlies won the national championship. I know, it's hard. The Grizzlies win it all. And they fly back home and they land, nothing. They get off the plane, no news people, no fans, nothing. Okay, well maybe they don't realize, you know, okay, let's go to Bill Street, let's put our uniforms on, let's walk, nothing. That would never happen, would it? And yet God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who wakes us up in the morning, puts us bed at night, gives us everything that we have, given me the clothes on my body, the skin on my body, the hair, what little hair I have left on my head, he's given me everything. And I've given him every reason to hate me and he sent his son to live and die and rise for me. And he's coming back for me one day. And I'm going to know a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm going to feast. And I'm going to drink wine and eat food at the table with the King Jesus. And I can't even... My greatest thought is but nothing compared to what it's actually going to be. And I don't give him glory. I don't worship him. I don't give my money. I don't give my time. I don't give him my sex. I don't give him... (laughs) No, you just kind of stay in your... No, this is a God who deserves all the glory. And that is what worship is all about. And then thirdly, we've got to live like God is our Father. You know, the, the real issue about the Sabbath day, the Sabbath is not just some rule to observe. I mean, I, I just—I grew up in a tradition where everybody debated what's right and what's wrong on the Sabbath. It's, it was the Pharisaical debate all over again. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. That's not even the point. The the, the the Sabbath law was given to a people who had spent 400 years of slavery, never had a day off in 400 years, never even no vacation, no day off, nothing. And God delivers them and tells them, "You." Because I'm your father and I'm your provider, not your hands. You're going to take a day off. And the people said, hallelujah. What a God. And we say, really? Well, how am I going to provide for my family? I mean, I got to pick up that next shift. I've got, you see, you're either living in anxiety or you're living in faith. And the, the, the people of God must live not an anxious life, but a life believing Jehovah Jireh. We can rest. Now listen to me. Some of you may need to work harder. I'm not, this is not about laziness. But I would say, I would dare say most of us are like me and we need to take time off. And we need to learn to say, God, I don't know how, but maybe I'm going to give up this, I'm going to give up that, because you have freed me to rest. You haven't just commanded me to rest and I drudgingly sit there all day. You've said, go rest! I mean, your father said, have you edged? <laughs> When you were a child or your children, have you ever said, okay, stop working, we're done, and they didn't just like, their face light up? Okay, you can stop working in the yard. Oh, come on, please, I love it so much, I want to keep working. No, they're not worried about the bills. Take a day off. Let's stop. Let's go get ice cream. Yes! That's what God is saying. Quit working and come to me. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For life's more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Oh, of much more value. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I love that. If, then, you are not able to do as a small thing like that, why are you anxious about rest, the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh you of little faith? Our God is a God that can be trusted. He can be trusted with your finances. He can be trusted with your work schedule. He can be trusted with your children and your friends. And He can be trusted because He's a Father that loves you. Do you know the Father's love this morning? Do you know the Father's love? Read the Psalms. That's what the psalmist begged. Oh, God, may I know your unfailing love. Praised him for his steadfast love. Do you know the love of God this morning? I'm going to ask the elders to come forward and community group leaders. And if you need prayer this morning, feel free to come forward. If you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want to recommit your life to Jesus, uh, you're probably going to have to do it again. But don't let that stop you from doing it this morning. If you want to just not leave here burdened by whatever God has put on your heart and you feel like it's on your shoulders, feel free to come forward for prayer as we just spend time bringing our offerings to our God and worshiping Him a bit more before we get out of here. Lord God, we thank You that You're a God that loves Your children. We thank You that we're a people that have every reason to be marked by joy, that have every reason to be marked as a people who can rest and not live anxiously or full of worry. Oh, God, I pray that we might give ourselves over to you today to live that kind of life. Oh, Father, help us to be the people of God. Help us to be a community. Help us to care about one another deeply to the point of even laying our lives down for one another. Oh God, I pray that the world might know our joy and they might know your love because of the love we pour out on them. Father, make it so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.